Well, it's good to see you all here this morning, and uh, I've got here the next two weeks in Sunday school, so I thought I'd do a little mini-series, and uh, I've got the teens up with me, and about two years ago, I did a series similar to this for the teens, so I've expanded it and compressed it at the same time, because we're going to do it here in two weeks. Um, But uh, I want to cover this topic of can we trust the Bible? Words uh, by nature to people are just important to them. How many parents have asked the question, I won't ask for a raise of hand, I, I know you heard me, did you listen to me, right? How many fights, and I definitely will not ask for a raise of hands, between spouses have started with, you're not listening, all right? That's, that's important to us, because when you don't listen to somebody's words, you're not listening to them. It's not a rejection of something outside of them. Words are an expression of ourselves. How many workplace problems come down to that, that key word of communication? Just nobody said anything, or nobody asked the right question, or nobody was paying attention when this problem was brought up, and therefore we're at the spot we're at. Words are important to people because they're important to the Creator. God values His words very much. And for that reason, people are expressive with their words, aren't they? We have poetry, we have soliloquies, we have plays, we, have, we use words constantly in those kinds of ways. We've found ways to express it in song and in poem and verse, on billboards and AI voices. I mean, it's everywhere you look, right? Words are important to people. In fact, they say that if you're going to do video, like on YouTube, the most important thing if you're just starting out is to get a good mic, not to get a good video camera, because it's your words that people listen to the most. They can forgive bad video, but not bad audio. We're inherently people who are word people, and Christians especially prioritize the word above all. Uh, We have this book because martyrs died for it. We have this book because translators gave their life to memorizing and studying ancient texts so that they could give it to us. Bible smugglers have sacrificed their lives the world over, centuries over. Christians have given to it. Right now, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of translation efforts where people are giving money money upon money to these things because we have to have the words of God. Words are important to people because they're important to God, and they're especially important to Christian people. Now, why is it that we value the Bible above everything else? Well, it's Oh, so I thought I saw it flake out on me. Maybe it did. Just yell at me if you can't see something. Um, this is our highest authority because it's God's speech, right? It's God's speech mediated by men, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God, all to glorify Christ. In this series, what I want to do is cover two basic topics. Today is God's commitment to His Word, and that will focus primarily on the Bible's own internal claims. Secondly, next week I'd like to focus on God's preservation of His Word, and that will focus primarily on historical analysis of how did God do this, and uh, we'll talk about why uh, that's the case even a little bit today. Today, uh, I do want to focus on three basic concepts, and I will warn you ahead of time, I am going to, assuming that this cooperates, I am going to um, put lots of verses up on the screen. Number one, please do not feel like you have to write everything down. I will have the actual PDF of this available uh, on our website right afterwards um, this afternoon. So if you want to grab that, you're welcome to do that. But uh, we're going to cover just three things, and I will have lots of verses to kind of back up what I'm saying because I don't want to just say things off the top of my head. I really want to make sure we're looking to the Word of God for this. Um, Today we're going to look at just three things, that God speaks His Word, that God confirms His Word, and that God preserves His Word. We're going to start to turn towards the next week already. All right? Does that make sense, kind of what we're going to do today? So looking at the internal Bible claims that God speaks, that He confirms, and that He preserves His Word. And then next week, we'll look at historically how God has done that and uh, 
the question that we're trying to answer is, can we trust what we have? Can we trust that this actually is the Word of God? Um, and uh, let's uh, begin today with looking at God's own commitment to His Word. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for your commitment to your Word. Even as we'll see today, this is not some haphazard book thrown together over centuries and stitched together to try to make sense. You have stitched it together so that it is a whole, and in that way you have not only taught us truths that are consistent, that expand on each other but never contradict, you have illuminated more than just truth, you've illuminated yourself. This word is a declaration about who you are, just like when we speak, those words are not separate from us, they're an extension of us. And in that same way, God, you have spoken and you highly exalt your words because they are a self-revelation. They tell us about who you are. I pray that you would help us today as we look at these texts, that you would convince us of the importance of your word to you and that that would translate to us placing that same level of importance on the Bible ourselves this week. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Like I said, we're going to focus on three things today, that God speaks His Word, that He confirms His Word, and that He preserves His Word. And just to help you keep track, I'm going to put a little number at the bottom of every slide so you know when we've transitioned to one to the other, right? Today we're going to talk about, first of all, God speaks His Word. We'll look under three different categories that God speaks in creation, that He speaks through the conscience, and that He, most importantly, speaks in the Bible. The Bible is the thing that helps us interpret those other two. Assuming that that mostly cooperates, uh, let me know if it doesn't, because I'm still seeing it flicker. Well, you'll see the verses, all right? And you can grab this afterwards. Sorry, sorry for the uh, disruption. First of all, God speaks through creation. This is how God starts. Genesis 1 starts with God speaking, and I think that's intentional. God already highlighting the importance of his word by the very act of creation. God could have created in lots of different ways, but he chose to speak. That tells us something about God's nature. God is a speaking God, we would say. God said, let there be light. What we find in the book of Psalms is that this is just some haphazard thing that God actually speaks, and he does so in such a way that it says something about him. It even is said like this, that creation, the heavens shout, they preach the glory of God. God's creation says something, that he is glorious. Uh, Romans 1 picks up on this, which we'll see in a moment, that his Speech in creation declares his general glory. That speech is enough to make us accountable. Like I just said in Romans chapter 1, we're told that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. That doesn't mean they know the name of Jesus or the entire uh, description of how somebody comes from uh, uh, a sinner who is an enemy of God to being a saint who's been saved by God. That doesn't mean that, but it does mean that his divine power, his divine nature, his eternal power have been clearly perceived. And notice there that Paul doesn't say they can be, but that creation is so clear in these two invisible attributes describing who God is that people have seen them. Now the, the problem is how they respond to it, which is why Paul says people are without excuse for these uh, two attributes of God. So God is God who speaks through creation. He speaks, but it's general, isn't it? That would be a very general form of revelation, and that's, in fact, what most theologians would call this, general revelation. There's actually another kind of general revelation that can be a little flakier because it does require us to let the Word of God teach us, and that is that God speaks through the conscience. The conscience is that part of us that evaluates our own actions, our own thoughts, our own words, and either commends us or condemns us. It's that part of you that says, that was wrong, and you knew it. 
Now, everybody has that. In fact, when you, you know, if you were to go right now, I'm not a Disney World or land person, but I know we have some in here. I will not ask for a raise of hands. Um, or I don't know if there's like a Disney chant everyone does. I'm not sure. I don't do that stuff. But um, imagine having to stand in a line for like 25 hours to see a ride. All right, now, if you're in that line, uh, I do not like lines, but let's say somebody cuts in front of you. Or let's say you cut in front of somebody else. Everyone in that line immediately is going to be upset, right? As they should, because lines are the worst. But if they do, people aren't upset because they say, hey, that's not my preference. We've decided that that's not okay. People will actually say that's wrong, right? There's an actual condemnation of that. That action is out of line, and everybody immediately agrees to that. These are the kinds of things that point to the fact that we have a conscience. The Bible speaks about this and says that people's consciences bear witness against them. And uh, their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. That's the whole condemn or um, commend them. But the conscience itself can be defiled, right? We can have a conscience that's out of whack, which is why we shouldn't always just follow our conscience, right? It is a, a form of God's uh, general revelation to us, but it is one just like creation itself that can be defiled. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says that this is exactly what some people have done, that they offered um, to food to an idol because their conscience was defiled. Our words, the word of God then has to govern how we see creation and it has to govern how we use our conscience, right? And that's why this final section here that God speaks his word uh, focuses on the Bible itself. It's this authoritative revelation that informs how we look at the other two. There's plenty of people who will go outside in nature, enjoy nature for what they see it as. But without the word of God to interpret that nature for us, we don't get the benefit that the Bible wants us to have. Same thing with the conscience. The conscience can be a good guide, but without the Bible as the governing force for how we apply that conscience, it can too get out of hand. See all Disney movies. I don't mean to trash Disney today. Suddenly that's what's happening. But the Bible is that governing force, isn't it? All scripture is by God's breath. This word scripture, as we'll see in a moment, is just the word for writing. But often when it's used in the New Testament, especially, it's talking about God's writing, or sometimes Paul will say holy writing, by which they mean like the sacred text, the sacred writings, the things God has given us. This word writing, then here, Paul clearly means all of the scriptures that they have at this point, the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But the important part here is that it's God's own breath. It's God's self-expression. It's God speaking to us. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that you're in one of those fights that never happens in your home between you and your spouse, and you listen to what your spouse says and then just start to mock the word she's using. You say, well, that's a, you should never have used that word. That's a stupid word for you know, what's going on. And she gets frustrated and says, why would you do that? And you say, well, it's just your words. I'm just picking apart your words. Husbands, how many of that, how, how many think that's going to fly, all right? <laughs> Not going to fly, is it? All right, wives, I'm sure you've never done that, so you don't, I don't even have to ask you. But the, the fact is that when you pick apart somebody's words, you're picking apart them. And that's how God views his own words, that his words are this expression of who he is. All scripture, then, is by God's breath. First Peter tells us that it's actually men who mediate this word to us, but even their mediation is carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible says that God spoke, first of all, through Old Testament prophets. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And this is true. This is part of the way God spoke his words. These Old Testament prophets, many of them wrote down much of what God wanted them to, and that has been preserved as holy writing or holy scriptures. But there's obviously not just an Old Testament, there's also a New Testament. Jesus, when he came, importantly said that he was going to teach his disciples more things that he wanted them to write down. This is one of the many passages we could look at for this. But Jesus says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. He goes on to describe that you're not, or just before this, he says, you're not ready to bear them, but when I leave, the Holy Spirit will teach you these things. And throughout the book of John, especially John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is developing this idea that he has more he wants them to, to, to know. He's going to express that to them after he leaves through the Holy Spirit. Paul then picks up on that, and this is really important even for understanding kind of what is in the Bible. Paul actually says that this is exactly what happened, that the Spirit taught them this truth. He says in passages like 1 Corinthians 2, that the words that they're teaching were not taught by human wisdom, they were taught to us by the Spirit. This us is the apostles. This is exactly who Jesus was talking to in John chapter 16. Jesus then said, I'm going to teach you more, and I want you to, to write those down. And that's why and one of the many reasons why the canon or the, the Scripture books are closed when the apostles die off, because this is Jesus' instruction that he's going to give them uh, once he passes off the scene. Paul says that the Spirit taught them this truth in the Bible. Now, the book of Hebrews makes a big point to say that the Old Testament, while authoritative and delivered to these prophets, is enough to hold us accountable. There's a sense in which the New Testament has even greater accountability because these are, in a maybe we might say in a more direct line, the words of the Son. I don't mean that to elevate the New Testament over the, New, the Old Testament, only to underline what the book of Hebrews says, that in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And the New Testament is the extension of what God said to his Son that God passed on to his disciples by the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews chapter 2 says that if we neglect the Old Testament and we're held accountable, how much more shall we be held accountable? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation here delivered to us by the Son of God himself? So this first kind of third of what we're going over today, I, don't, I hope none of this is brand new to anyone, but it is important for us to recapture that God is a speaking God, and he spoke to us generally in creation and generally in our consciences. Both of those then have to be governed by the explicit, uh, specific revelation of the Word of God. This revelation didn't just come to Old Testament prophets, but specifically was culminated in the words of Jesus Christ that he taught to his disciples by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Scriptures. These are the Holy Writings, and that's what we're talking about in this series. Now, what I want to move to next, we'll slow down the pace a little bit, because some of these things, I think, are things that we either haven't given thought to or maybe haven't broken out in this way, and I want to slow down just a touch, um, because secondly, we're going to talk about God confirming his word. And I like to do this in two different stages. First, that there's an internal confirmation of the Old Testament. And secondly, that there's an internal confirmation of the New Testament. The internal confirmation of the Old Testament, by that I mean that in the Bible, the Bible is self-authenticating. If it is the highest authority, we can't go to an authority outside of that. Imagine you have a case. Maybe it's against the guy who cut you in line at Disney World, all right? And you go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, well, we would hear you, but we're going to go to a higher court. 
you would say, well, what court is that? And then they would look around and say, well, actually, I guess that's us. Because there is no higher court. That's what a highest authority looks like. The Bible itself, then, if it is our highest authority, if it is God's own self-expression, the first thing we have to ask is, what does it say about its own authority? We can't go to an outside source to confirm the highest authority. So in that way, what I want to do is then say, well, what does this highest authority say about itself? So we'll look first at the Old Testament, and then we'll look at the New Testament. And uh, generally speaking, what we'll do is we'll see that the New Testament says, hey, we believe the Old Testament to be the Word of God, and then we believe that these New Testament books are the same as that. And that's essentially the path we'll go on because that's the path that the Bible takes. First of all, we'll say that the New Testament writers believed that all the Old Testament is Scripture. This is one example from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. All this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, one thing you'll see when you read the New Testament, you'll see references to Moses or the law, the prophets, and the writings, or sometimes they're just called the Psalms. Those are the three general categories in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible breaks down into those three categories. And even today, that's how it's broken down. The prophets, the law, and the writings. And in Matthew alone, I have this at the bottom of the screen, the law is referenced some 30 times. Directly quoted, or that phrase, the law, says this, is found some 30 times. The prophets, some 31 times. The writings, 23 times, just in Matthew. Now, Matthew is ex ex exceptional in this way. He constantly is tying, because of his audience, what he's saying to the Old Testament text. But in this way, what he's saying is the Scripture has been fulfilled. And they, he's saying, I believe that these are Scriptures. This is his proof. This is how he's saying, here's how I know what God has said. Now, that's not just the case for the Gospels. This is also the case in uh, Paul himself, who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, there's the Old Testament prophets from the book of Hebrews, in the, notice he doesn't just call it scriptures, the writings, he says holy scriptures to identify these kinds of writings. This is what I'm calling the writings. And he goes on to describe all scripture being breathed out by God, like we just read about in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, this is what God promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This holy writing was breathed out by God. Another example of this is from Peter, and I'm just really handpicking just a few of these uh, for the sake of um, not overwhelming it, which hopefully I'm not doing with all this text. The New Testament writers, like Peter, also say this. He'll do things like this in 1 Peter 2. This happens all throughout the Bible, uh, the New Testament especially. 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9, he quotes a bunch of things, and he calls it Scripture. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, and you see all these underlined sections. Well, if I were to overlay here, you'd see he'd be quoting from Isaiah, from Psalms, from Isaiah, from Deuteronomy, and from Exodus, in this little chunk. Now, you'll notice Isaiah is in which category? We've got, remember, the law, the prophets, and the writings, which would be like the poetry. Where is Isaiah found? Prophets, all right? How about Psalms? Writings. How about the law? Or, sorry, <laughs> Which ones are the law? The left ones. Yeah, the ones left. All right? Deuteronomy and Exodus, right? And what he's doing is he's quoting from these things intentionally to basically make his case from every section of the Scriptures. And he's saying, Scripture says this. And then he quotes from each section to say, this is what the Scripture says. Peter does this, as do many other writers throughout the, the New Testament. Now, one quick note. You'll see here we've got quotation marks. That's because some of these are direct quotes, some of these are more allusions. In Peter's manuscript, there was not quotation marks. We put these in afterwards to show this is a direct quote, but you'll actually find that that phrase, um, 
uh, your chosen race comes from Deuteronomy. A royal priesthood comes from both Deuteronomy and Exodus. A holy nation comes from Exodus as well. A people for his own, his own people, that also comes from the book of Exodus. So he's pulling together little sections that were popular in his day to try to make the point from every section of the Old Testament. This, he calls it, is Scripture. In the Scripture, it stands this way. So the New Testament writers unif uniformly believe that all the Old Testament is the written word of God. It's holy writing. Jesus also said the same thing. This is just one example, and this is Luke's own telling of this. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then he said, um, this is later on in that same section, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding, what does he call it? The writings, the scriptures, the holy writings. Jesus was constantly referencing all three sections as a way to say, this is what we have from God. So God is confirming this highest authority internally, which is what you'd expect from this kind of authority. This is exactly um, what we'll find about the Old Testament. Now, this Old Testament confirmation then gives us an opportunity to compare something new with it, right? We would say it like this. If something new comes along that claims to be the Word of God, but it contradicts what we know to be the Word of God, it cannot be the Word of God, right? That's how it works. If we have something that we know to be the Word of God, that all the apostles, that Jesus himself says, this is the Word of God, and then we have something new that comes along that contradicts that, that says something that's opposite to what it says earlier, that doesn't build upon it or extend from it or is not anticipated by it, this cannot be the Word of God. Now, that's important because the Word of God isn't just arbitrary language that God is throwing out, right? The Word of God is an expression of who He is. God does not change. God does not morph with the times as much as people out there would want Him to, right? People want to twist God and put Him in little buckets and make Him change to sound more American or make Him change to sound more this or that, but God doesn't. And the reason that the Scripture shouldn't change is because God doesn't change. These writings aren't just writings about random moral truth. They're an extension of God himself. So unless God is changing, his words cannot change fundamentally. Imagine like this, I, I open a, a letter that purports to be from Megan. Maybe the handwriting even looks just like her. I open the thing up and it says, hey, loser, whoa, what's this about? And then she just proceeds to destroy my character and says like, see you later, Megan. Now, I would know immediately this is a forgery, because that's contrary to everything I know to be true about her, right? And that's what you would do as well. That's, that's part of the self-authentic nature of a real relationship. When God speaks, he speaks consistently. And so we would expect that if the Old Testament is Scripture, that anything else he'll give us as new revelation has to conform to that. It has to agree with it. It has to align with it, because God doesn't change. Not because of some arbitrary rule that people set up, the scriptures themselves are a self-expression of who God is. It's not just a set of moral truths that can change as the times change. So in that way, when we read the New Testament, the question we should be asking is, does it align with what we know to be scripture? And what the New Testament claims is that it does. There's this internal confirmation of the New Testament. Now, it does this in a bunch of different ways. One of the ways is by anticipating the New Testament. The Old Testament, the, the New Testament, we could say it like this. The New Testament doesn't come from nowhere. It's been waited on. It's been anticipated. The Old Testament keeps hinting that there's more to come. Examples like this. This is just one example from the book of Titus. I give you another reference there in 1 Timothy. He says, 
We're speaking in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. And in this way, he's saying, God had promised this ahead of time. He's told us in his word. Now I'm declaring it to you. And this way, he's saying it was anticipated. Another example of this would be like the, the New Testament uh, or the New Covenant itself. This is from the book of Hebrews, but you could also look at the actual New Testament, New Covenant text, like in Jeremiah 31. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. In other words, in the Old Testament, there was this anticipation of this new promise that God was going to make, this new promise, this new covenant itself. The word testament actually means that. It means a covenant. The New Testament is, in a, in a very real way, the expression of this new covenant. This is what the Old Testament predicted, that there would be this new covenant, and Jesus says that this is what the New Testament is. Another way in which this is confirmed is that the Old Testament points to this Gentile salvation, which was yet to be realized. In the New Testament, this is exactly what we see as the core history of the New Testament. Jesus dies, and then what happens to the early church? But they scatter everywhere, and what it looks like is the whole world being saved. Jesus, in his final days, says this exact thing to his disciples, doesn't he? Go and teach everyone all that I've commanded you. Passages like Isaiah 49 that says, My salvation may reach the end of the earth. Even Genesis 12, 3, the initial promise to Abraham, the whole point of it was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Old Testament had been saying this all along, that this promise God had made to the people of Israel wasn't just for the people of Israel, it was for all nations, and yet they hadn't been realized yet. It's the New Testament where we see that come into its full view. So in all these ways, the Old Testament anticipates there is more to come, that there is a new covenant that would be expressed in new scriptures that align with, but are anticipated by the Old Testament. I want us to turn to a couple of these texts, and uh, if you want to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, i got to make you turn at least a couple times today, so that's, what we're, that's why we're doing this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 18. Another way that the New Testament is confirmed as Scripture is that it's set next to the Old Testament. It's set next to it as the same thing. And in that way, what the New Testament writers are saying is, both of these things are of the same kind. We know the Old Testament is God's Word. This New Testament writing is the same. And that's how the New Testament writers lay this out. Here are just three examples. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, uh, let me see. Could I have somebody read that for me? Who's there? Yes, Joe? Go for it. So you'll see that there's a quotation from Deuteronomy, and there's also one from 1 Corinthians. Or, um, this is Paul likely summarizing some of Jesus' teaching, which is why they put it here in red. There's also similar phrases like this in the Gospels. So in the same way, it's saying, for the Scripture says this and this. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and this. Secondly, we've looked at one from the law. Let's look at one from uh, the prophets. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. So if you want to turn there with me. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Does anyone want to read this for me? I 
need someone to read all right, Megan? Thank you. So you see, there's actually two of these phrases in here. It groups them all together under the same quotation, but one of them is from Isaiah 28, verse 16, and one is from Romans chapter 9, verse 33. And both of this, it says, in Scripture, it stands, and it says it this way. You don't have to turn nearly as far for this one, but another example of this is Paul and all other Scripture. By here, he's referencing all the sections of the Old Testament. Let's turn to 2 Peter 3, 16. Okay, you know the question that's coming. Can I have somebody read this for me? Um, actually, let's read, yeah, let's read verse 15 and 16. Somebody willing to do that for me? Pastor Don. See there, what he's doing is he's taking all the, re- the letters of Paul and then saying people twist them just like they do with other scriptures. And by saying other scriptures, he's saying Paul is scripture. Paul, what Paul wrote down for you is holy writing. It's writing from God himself. So in this second section where we've seen that God confirms his word, he does so internally. The Old Testament is confirmed by all the, Old, the New Testament prophets and Jesus himself. And then the New Testament is confirmed in part by being placed next to it by being anticipated by the Old Testament, by confirming what's been said, by building upon it but not contradicting it. In this way, God confirms uh, the, the, the Bible itself. So God speaks, he's a speaking God, and God confirms his speech, and he does so internally, which is what we'd expect of his highest authority. Now lastly, what I want to turn to is a very, kind of the briefest section we'll have, because this will be what all of next week is about. God preserves his word. Now, I want to look under this under two headings. One is what God says about preserving His Word, and two, what God doesn't say about preserving His Word. And both are important, all right? And then next week, uh, we'll explain why we're going to look at mostly history uh, next week as we go through here. First of all, what God says about preserving His Word. God says that His Word will endure forever. We have examples like this, Psalm 119.89, that God says, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It doesn't change. It's not even be able in that way able to be corrupted. It's, it's fixed in the heavens. God says, like in Psalm 119, 52, that you founded them forever, that your righteous rules endure forever. This is constant throughout uh, the Bible. Or like in Isaiah 40, verse 8, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So in this way, God says, my word will always endure. It will always stay on. But it's not just that it exists, it's that it proves to be the case. It proves to be true. It proves to be the truth. So passages like Proverbs 30, verse 5 say just this, that every word of God proves true. You test it, the word here is like test something under fire, and it comes out gold. God's word is always proving to be true. Or like Isaiah 55, God's word is proven to be true because God's the one who said it, and God's the one who will make sure that it happened. So he says things like this, that whatever I say, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Or like Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus himself says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. These two words are words that are connected to uh, the way that Hebrew scribes would write. These little dots, these little squiggle lines, even little turns on a letter 
Not one of those will pass away, Jesus says, until it all proves true. By which he says, it's not going to pass away. God's word always proves true. Jesus says this even more explicitly when he says things like, the scripture cannot be broken. It will do what it says. Or your word is truth, categorical truth. Not can be truth, not can be perceived as truth, it's truth. This is what God says about his word, that it's always going to endure and it will always prove to be true. Now, what does God not say about preserving his word? All right, now we could put anything here, but there's one important thing that God doesn't say. And that is simply this, how he's going to do it. God doesn't say how he'll do this. He just says that he will. This is where a lot of times this conversation about preservation can get kind of off track is people start to put in God's word, in God's own language, things he didn't say. God doesn't tell us how he did it. He just told us that he would do it. So it's up to us then to ask the question, not if God preserved his word, but how did God do that? And that's why next week what we're going to do is look at history and ask this question, since God said he did this, let's go see how he did this, right? And so that's what we're going to do next week is look at this preservation. Now, today we've been talking about God's commitment to his word, that he speaks, God speaks his word, he confirms his word internally, and that he said he will preserve it. Next week we're going to look at how he did that in history. We're going to look backwards and say, since God loves his word so much, he treasures it, he confirms it, he says he'll preserve it, how did he do that? And can we gain confidence in the word because of the way he did that? I want to end, though, with this passage and a few applications. Psalm 138. You can see how Jesus or how God himself doesn't separate himself from his word. God doesn't say, well, there's me that you can experience kind of personally and in nature and all these other ways, and then there's the word, and that's over there. He actually exalts them together. Psalm 138 says, you've exalted above all things your name. That's who you are and your word, because that's his self-expression. That's who he is. It's a revelation of himself. This is God's own perspective on the authority, the importance, the significance of his word. Now, what does all this mean for us? I think a lot of today hopefully was a review for you. You're right, God does talk about his word like that. Wow, God does really highlight the importance of his word. God does confirm his word, but that means nothing if we go out of here and say, well, great, now I know more. That's, that's not why. This is not the the more you know, like ending, all right? Why is it important to us? How should we respond to this? Well, I think most obviously probably is that we should read this. I don't mean like come on Sunday and have a Bible with you. I mean like you should read this yourself. If these are God's treasured words that he said he's going to preserve in part for you, then it's our job to actually listen to it, not just to hear it, to borrow from you and your children, to listen carefully to the word, to revere the Word of God. There are different ways to listen to the Word of God. Am I right? You can come as a critic who every time you hear God speak, you decide, oh, I don't really like that. I'll take that part. I won't take that part. That's how most people listen to the Bible. Even many people who come to services just like this, they say, let me hear, then I will evaluate, then I will obey. But there's a different kind of listening when you know the words you're listening to are the words of God. When you're reading the Bible, when you're hearing this taught, the question to ask is now, if this is true, but since this is true, how will I respond? It's a totally different perspective. It's the only time that you can say, you know what, I will turn off the evaluation center of my brain if this really is the truth. And the question is not, is this true, but how will I obey this? How will I respond to this? There's a way in which that's the only time you ever listen that you should listen like this. 
Now, most of the time, kids should listen to their parents, right? But it's possible that parents guide you astray. I've, I'm sure, given bad advice as a parent. I'm sure I've heard bad advice given from parents to children. It's possible that you say, you know what? My parents mean well, but what they actually said isn't the right thing to do here. It's possible when your boss says the same thing. Isn't it true that you should evaluate what you're being asked to do? Is this morally right? Should I be doing this? Every other speech we hear is a speech that first goes through a filter. But if this is the ultimate authority, we don't get to stand over it. We don't get to be the Supreme Court above the Supreme Court that decides whether or not it's true. There's a different kind of listening that's required if this is the word of God. What I'm saying to you is that this is how God describes it. So we have to listen differently. There's a way to listen that says, God, before you say a word, the answer is yes. That's, God's the only one who gets that from us. And it's because of what we've looked at today. And finally, I'd encourage you to engage with the Holy Spirit over his word. That as you read, you're not reading a book that's static and cold and lifeless and outside of you in that way. You're reading a book, and if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit inside of you, these are his words to you. So often I hear Christians say, I just wish I had a word from God personally for me. My friend, you do. Jesus said this was better than him being there, which is a remarkable thing to say. And part of the reason for that is because it's the Holy Spirit himself who takes those words that we read, because you never read the Bible alone, and he presses them into our heart and causes, I believe that. That's not you. That's the word, that's the Spirit of God taking the word of God and causing change. So as we read this book, let us be reminded that we do not read it alone. You never have. If you're a Christian, you always read this with the Holy Spirit. This is not some static, cold, academic exercise. It's an engagement with a person who's spoken to us and gone to great lengths to confirm that this is his word to us. Now, this is just a very, very brief overview of this topic. But if you have other questions about this, I'm always happy to answer them. But I hope I've done enough to show you that the Bible says these are the words of God. And we can trust these words. Next week, what I want to look at as more confirmation of the fact that we can trust the Bible is that God has preserved his word, and he's done it in some miraculous ways. And when we see that, I hope to even confirm more what the authority says, that this really is the true word of God. Let's pray, and then we'll take about 10 minutes before we gather together for worship. God, thank you for your word. You are a God who speaks. This is not some impersonal declaration of moral truths that we have either assent to or we don't, but it's just an opinion that we can um, accept or reject. These are the words of a person. And for that reason, rejecting the word of God, questioning in that way as a critic the word of God is to question God himself. This is how people talk, and this is the reason, because they were created by a God who speaks like this. Thank you for being so clear and confirming your word. Thank you that you've given us your word, preserved and even in our own tongue. What a blessing to have this. And so let us read carefully. Let us listen carefully. Let us revere your word. Listen like a worshiper, not like a critic. And let us read it with the Holy Spirit, that he would teach us and that we would accept your truth by his help. We ask all these things in Christ's name.